You may have heard the claim that raising children with faith is brainwashing or even child abuse. That's an accusation worth exploring because it has implications for how children are raised in general. Even if you're skeptical of religion, you might be surprised about the enormous amount of benefit that comes from sharing faith with your children. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Signs of the Times Radio. My name is Daniel Kubedek and joining me from one of my favorite cities in Australia, the Gold Coast, is Karen Collum. How you doing, Karen? I am awesome. It is a beautiful sunny day on the Gold Coast. And yes, most people want to live here for good reason. It's a fabulous place to live. I know. One of my mates actually lives on the Gold Coast and I was just hanging out with him up there. and He was they were asking where I was from at, at the hairdresser that we were at. And I'm like, I'm from Sydney, but I'd like to move to the Gold Coast one day. And they were like, yeah, it's Australia's best kept secret. So <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure it's a secret anymore, though. Like everyone seems to want to move here for good reason, like I said. And I grew up in Tasmania. So the weather up here, I now am a Queenslander. If it's under 20 degrees, I'm cold. <laughs> yeah, wow. The Gold Coast is really a far cry from from Tasmania. So, <laughs> so Karen, this is the first time we're talking. And as with all first-time discussions, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So, you're an art. Obviously, you're an author. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So, I started out my professional career as a primary school teacher, one of the best careers you could ever have. I loved it. Lots of creativity, lots of relationship building, and I've now been a teacher for 25 years now. It sounds a lot when I say it out loud. And then after I had my own kids, I took some time off. So I didn't teach for a few years apart from relief teaching. And then about six years ago, we moved to the Gold Coast and I did some relief teaching at our local Christian school up here. It's part of the Adventist school system. And from there, I went back to full-time teaching for a little while, but I've got four of my own children and that became a little bit tricky to juggle. And so... I went back to part-time work and then during the middle of that season in my life, I felt very strongly, I guess in Christian speak, it would be the call, which is just like this sense that, that God has opened a way or a door for you to do something to go back and study again. So I'm partway through my graduate diploma of ministry and theology at Avondale University. I'm three years in because I'm only doing it part-time and I've got about another two years to go, but the end is in sight. And in the middle of all of that, a chaplaincy job came up at Gold Coast Christian College where I had been working as a teacher. And chaplaincy is just an awesome space to be. My role is more around general well-being and about being, I, I guess I describe myself as being like that extra adult in your child's life that they can go to. So, you're wearing so many hats from the sound of it and it's mind-boggling that you even have the time. But on top of all this, you're also an author of kids' books, right? So, how did you get into that and what sort of books have you published so far? Sure. Well, I think I grew up, I love to read, absolutely love to read. And I grew up thinking that to be a writer, it was like you were part of this magical group of people that to be a writer, someone must have come along and sprinkled magic fairy dust on you. And that's how you got 
the joy of writing books because I didn't know anyone who was a writer. I didn't know anything about the process. But deep down in my heart of hearts, I always dreamed of having a book with my name on the front cover. Now, it took me quite a long time to get there, and it actually wasn't until I was home with my oldest son. Now, he's 16, so that's how long ago that was. But when he was a baby mm. and I'd, I'd stopped work to be a full-time mum for a little while, and that was just a privilege that we were able to, to make happen, I couldn't stop thinking about writing. And I realized that I suppose at the core of it, I was just scared. I was scared that I couldn't do it. I was scared that I wouldn't be good enough. And I decided that this was probably a really special time in my life where I actually had a little bit of intellectual space to think about it. Now, anyone with young children knows that you don't have any physical space and you you don't have a lot of emotional energy sometimes at the end of a busy day with kids. But I'd put First of all, my oldest son to bed, and then later on I had twins a couple of years later. And then after that I had another baby, so we had four kids in in five and a bit years, which was amazing. But I'd put the kids to bed and then I'd sit down and I'd write. And I guess you could say I put myself through my own apprenticeship because I knew nothing. All I knew was that I loved words and that I could recognize good writing. And I'd, I'd always, I guess, at school excelled in English, like I got all the English prizes and, and people used to compliment my writing. I'd write poems for people. I'd write songs for special occasions. So words were kind of my jam. I knew that I could use words in a powerful way, but I didn't know whether that was something that was marketable almost. And I didn't know the process. So I spent probably a good two years, I don't know how many hundreds of hours I spent scouring the internet for blogs. And this is back in the, you know, early 2000s where everyone was blogging and, and all these writers were sharing their writer's journey. And I learned about how publishers work and I learned about cover letters and how to write a submission. And, and my specialty was picture books. I'd always loved the interplay between the visual element and the words, and I loved reading them to my kids. So I used to go to the library and borrow <laughs> heaps of picture books, and I'd pretend I was reading them for the children, but it was actually for me. Then through that process, I started writing my own, and I think the first submission I sent, I think from memory, I was about 34 weeks pregnant with my twins. They're now 13. And I had written a picture book and I sent it to a publisher and pressing send was the scariest thing that I think I've ever done because mm. for me, it was like my heart was on that page and I was taking a risk and I was being really vulnerable and there was no guarantee that I was going to succeed. And I knew how competitive it was and I knew that I would just go into a slush pile, which is that big pile of manuscripts that unknown authors get put into. And so I did that and I was expecting to have to wait up to six months for a reply. Well, that very day I got a reply back saying that they were interested and that just, I did cartwheels. Like I literally just jumped up and down and squealed and it was amazing and then worked with that publisher for a little while. But unfortunately, it was right before the global recession and mm. that publishing house actually closed. So that book didn't ever get published. But it gave me, I guess, confidence and it showed me the process and that I must have been doing something right. So that helped me continue. And then in 2010, I had three books out that one year, which is kind of crazy, but I had one commercially published called Samuel's Kisses. 
and that was published by New Frontier Publishing. And that one ended up being published in South Korea as well. And then it was sold to Barnes & Noble in the United States. So I am technically an internationally published author. They changed the name of that one from Samuel's Kisses to Blow Me a Kiss. And that same year, I had two more published with a small Christian publisher from the UK called Stambra Press and an imprint that they publish under called Autumn House. And I had one called When I Look at You, which is a book about feelings for children. And I guess I've always loved being in kind of that therapeutic, emotional well-being type space. And so this one is a story just about when I look at you, I see that your eyes are crinkled up, your hands are clenched and you're stamping your feet. I think you might feel angry. So it's just kind of helping kids name emotions from a body perspective. And then I had my next one. It's kind of been the one that's most well-known and that's called Fish Don't Need Snorkels. And that's a book for very little children about how God made animals and the different characteristics they have. So you know, does a giraffe need a ladder to reach the top of the tree? No, God gave the giraffe a long neck to reach the top of the tree. And that was actually inspired by my eldest son. Kids are great source for, for picture book writers. So I had four of them, so I could just kind of glean little bits and pieces. And then commercially, I guess my most successful book came in 2015. I had Small and Big released with Windy Hollow Books, and that one went on to be long-listed for Children's Book of the Year through the Children's Book Council of Australia. So that was very exciting. Yeah. I fully respect what you're doing because as a kid, picture books really spark the imagination. They really make you dream big, think big. It's reading it as an adult, even then it's cool. Like uh, fish don't need snorkels. The, the illustrations are so cool. What I love great, about great picture books is that you've got like the, the, the sum is greater than the parts. So, you know, the illustrations are great. The words are great, but you put them together and there's something amazing that happens. So it's like a one plus one equals three. Yeah, kind of they thing, kind of both bring something to the table, two different ingredients that create a nice recipe. So, yeah, very cool. And one book that we're going to be talking about now is one that is actually being released this year. It's called- It's so exciting. I can't <laughs> wait. It's been a long time between books for me, so I'm a little bit excited about this one. Yeah, it's been quite a few years. It's called Advent for Kids. Now, the thing is, Karen, we actually got Nathan Brown, who is a, a book editor and author- on last year to talk about his book called Advent, which is mm-hmm. pretty much a book with devotional thoughts for, I think it was every single day of- Days of December, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a very cool book and I, I've read through it. Now, the book that you're releasing is called Advent for Kids and it is a collaboration with Nathan Brown. Now, can it you has just tell his us name about- on the cover. Yes, it does. And for good reason. So, yeah, can you tell us about the book? Because, I, like, to be honest, I'm a complete noob. I actually have not read the book. So, how is it different from Nathan Brown's devotional book, Advent? And how did you make it relevant for kids? Sure. So, I guess I have a long history professionally working with children and also in a volunteer capacity at our local church. So, my husband's a church pastor. We've um, moved around a lot over the last 25 years. And I guess I've always ended up in leadership in some way in children's ministries. So for me, meeting the needs of kids, meeting them where they're at is really important. The way this came about, so I've known Nathan for a long time and love his work, really respect the way he writes. He writes in a very thoughtful, almost intellectual way often, but it's very accessible still. And he has just a way of explaining difficult things 
in ways that people understand. And he contacted me and Science Publishing on behalf of Science at the start of the year, asking if I would be willing to work on a joint project. Now, I always love it when someone comes to me rather than me having to promote and, you know, try and get leads and things. So this one, they came to me, which was awesome. And they had a vision for taking the idea of this Advent book, which was a brilliant idea, 31 readings for the month of December about the life of Jesus and about his birth, but not just his birth, but about the lead up to it, the political situations, the different players, why he was born, what the purpose was, then going right through to his death and resurrection, and then looking forward to, as the Bible says, one day that he's going to come again. And Nathan and the team at Signs had a vision for this being something that families might be able to use as well. My job was to take Nathan's original Advent book and take each chapter, one for every day of the month, and to springboard off that and create a companion volume of a book that would be suitable for families with children aged 5 to 12. Mm. So my brief was to come up with a way that we could take whole families on a journey through the Advent season and that would tie in with the original book. So that was quite a process to work out how we were going to do that because we've got something. I mean, Nathan's one of the smartest guys I know. So we're talking about like this really high-level abstract thought and deep concepts. How do we take that? and transform it in a way that maintains its integrity, doesn't dumb it down, but makes it accessible for families. So that's what we do. And each, I guess, chapter in my book, perhaps the difference is there's a lot more interactivity in mine. So we've taken the same chapter themes. The headings might be slightly different because there were there were some aspects of the, the Christmas story and particularly political events surrounding it that were quite confronting, even for adults. So I had to be very sensitive in the way that I address that for, for children. And what we've done is we've come up with a structure where each day has five different elements. So each day, the first thing when you open the book, the first thing you see is round table. And the round table is just a question or an activity that a family can do together. So, for example, one of the chapters has something, you know, play a game of would you rather? Would you rather hold a spider or a snake? Would you rather go skydiving or rock climbing? Would you rather touch a worm or a snail? So things that get families talking, that kids can contribute, adults can contribute, and it just is that time of sharing with the family. Then it goes to remember, and remember has a Bible verse, and that Bible verse relates directly to that day's reading, and those Bible verses are the shared thing between Advent and Advent for Kids. So every Bible verse that is highlighted in Advent for Kids has actually been one that Nathan used in the original Advent. And then we go to the read section, and for the read section, we've got a short three to 400-word little reading about the theme that parents can read to their children kids can read it themselves. An older brother could read it to, you know, a younger sibling. So it's designed to be used in multiple ways, depending upon what the family needs. After the reading, there's a reflect section. And this is about families sitting there and going, huh, what have we just read? What did that mean? Things like, the reflect section says, when you make a mistake, how can you make things right with people and with God? 
So that's just a discussion. You've had this experience together. You've spent five or 10 minutes enjoying each other's company, sharing this little reading, thinking about it, and then you have a chance to reflect on that. And then that is followed by a react section where you have the opportunity to do something a little bit more active. So it might be sing a song. It might be act out part of the Christmas story. It might be create a Christmas decoration. There's a whole heap of different ideas. And the beauty of this is that you can pick and choose what works for your family. So if you're in a rush, you might just do the reading. If you've got a bit more time, you might go through all of the steps and everything's all there in one nice little package for you for every day in the month of December. And that sounds really different to the picture books that you had previously. Like, obviously, picture books are intended for a parent and their child to sit there and read together or the the parent reads it to the child at bedtime or something similar. Whereas this one is really sort of engaging the whole family. Is that a, a first for you? And was that challenging as opposed to your previous work? Yeah, I guess... Even with my picture books, I always try and write them in such a way that the adults get something out of them too. So Mm. the very best picture books are the ones where the adults will have a laugh about something and it may have gone over the kids' heads, but both Mm. can enjoy it. And I guess I have a passion for children. I think that the potential in every single child, you know, sometimes I just get teary thinking about the kids at our school and, and how amazing they are and how much they have to offer. And I wanted them to have a voice in this process. But I also know that family time is really hard to come by. We've got a busy family ourselves and our kids are aged between 10 and 16 now. And life's tough. It's really hard to find time to sit together. And this book is designed to bring families together, whether it's in the car on the way to school whether it's over the dinner table, whether families are in the habit of having like a worship time together. It's it, either, you know, some point during the day, morning or evening. This is designed to be an anchor point for them and something really easy. So you can just go, right, guys, we're all here, gather around. It's almost bedtime, but we're going to just read this together. So it's not designed to be a burden. It's supposed to be something that is easy for parents, but also accessible for kids. Writing for kids, I believe you need to start from this real place of respect, respecting their intelligence, respecting their experience. The best children's writers and the ones that I know, and um, I've got a lot of friends who write for children, they're the most empathetic, empowering people for children. So sometimes there can be a false perspective that children's writing is easier So writing for kids is easier. You use fewer words. Yeah, but let me tell you, Nathan used a whole lot more words than I did to explain some of these concepts, and I wished I had the same space sometimes that he did. But it was really hard. It was hard to gather, I suppose, these theological concepts. And that's there's a lot of theology in this book, but it's not scary theology. Theology is just, you know, study of God. And this is designed to provide thoughtful accurate, theologically sound principles that all ages can understand. But that was a challenge because I only had so few words to do it in. But all that means is you have to be really clear on your word choice and every word has to fight for its place. So I guess I feel like writing picture books helped me write this because Mm. I'm used to writing to a brief. I'm used to writing to a word count. The great Australian picture book author, Mem Fox, once was asked whether writing a picture book was easy. Picture books are around about 500 words normally. And she made some off-the-cuff comment about it. it. You know, it's easy. It's just like writing war and peace, but in haiku. 
Hmm. And when you think about that, that's really what I feel like I've tried to do with this book. Now, I hope I've succeeded, but it, it's take people on a journey. It's connect people to their families. It's have a real heart for kids and an awareness of their stage of development, their interests, I suppose, just how they view the world. But then also I needed to show them and I wanted to show them who Jesus was and who he is and why that matters. So we have this great Christmas story, but so what? What does it mean? And that's the journey that you go on through the 31 days. Well, that's an interesting point because, you know, you actually wrote an article for us a few months ago, which was discussing the question of whether or not people should or should not or is it ethical to start talking to your kids about faith and, and what age to do that or or is that even right? Now, that's a pretty interesting question that you tackle. I mean, it's it's fundamental to Advent for Kids, you know, the interaction between the parents and the kids, talking about the Christmas story, talking about the Christmas story as is described in the Bible. And yet there's people like Professor Richard Dawkins, who we talked about on the podcast with other guests in the past, who is an evolutionary biologist. And he actually is leading the charge to claim that teaching kids about religion is child abuse. His line is that teaching kids that religion exists is fine, but to then go ahead and and tell them about the specifics would be brainwashing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Now, is that something you've heard before you you read anything that Richard Dawkins said about the matter? Is this a a common criticism of talking to kids about religion or, or faith or things like the the Christmas story as is described in the Bible? Yeah, 100%. And I think it is something that, first of all, we need to be really respectful in our conversations around this. I have many, many extended family members who I love dearly who don't claim to have any faith whatsoever. In fact, they would describe themselves as atheists. I suppose I have been on the receiving end of criticism, certainly just personally, from extended family members saying, well, you're brainwashing your children, you're taking them to church. And that was quite challenging for me to hear that. And I suppose where I landed on that is all parents are making decisions for their children in their best interests. That's our job as parents. We all make decisions for our kids. I acknowledge that I'm making this decision for my child whereas I felt like this particular extended family member didn't acknowledge that they were making decisions for their child. So just as my decision to raise my child in a family of faith and to actively involve them in that faith, that is a choice that, yes, they're right, my child doesn't have a whole lot of agency when they're young in that space, but my choice is no less a choice than their choice was to raise their children without faith. So I guess I land at the point of we're all making choices. It's just that my choice is different from your choice. Mm. And I'm interested in this, to be honest, because I feel like, I feel like we have an obligation. If we are going to raise our kids in faith, we need to be doing that in the healthiest way possible. Now, most people that I know, they want to raise their children in faith because they actually have a real heart for God. They've had a personal encounter with him. They have seen the work of God in their own lives. They believe in the power of the Bible, the power of the gospel, that good news. And they believe that having this faith is transformational. So 
of course we're going to want to pass that on to our kids if that's how we feel about it. And I think then the question is, well, how do we do that in a really, really healthy way? And there is actually a lot of research around this. And when I was writing that article for Science, I had so much fun. It was like, wow, this is awesome because I could go and see both sides of the argument. And I suppose, like I said at the start, my argument to this is we're all making choices for our kids. I look at, uh, there's one family here on the Gold Coast, good friends of ours, we love them to pieces. Their kids are Richmond AFL supporters because it's in their DNA. They get Mm. told that from the time they're born, they get bought the clothes, they're indoctrinated, you would say, into being a fan of the Richmond Football Club. Now, that's a choice their family makes. There are other families that NRL would be their sport of choice or maybe no sport. Part of being a parent is passing things on. So it shouldn't be surprising that people of faith want to pass on their faith to their children because they have that there for a reason. So then the question is, how do we do that in a really healthy way? And with my research into that, I actually started looking at Richard Dawkins' perspective because I think we have to be able to form coherent arguments for why we do what we do. It reminds me of this story I heard years ago, and it's, it's around the traps different places as a little bit of a, I guess, an object lesson or an analogy. And this woman got married and, and they were having their first Christmas dinner and she chopped the leg off, like the end off the turkey. And her husband kind of went, what are you doing that for? My mum never did that. And she's like, well, my mum always did. That's how you do a Christmas turkey. You, You always chop off the last little bit. That's how you do it. And it wasn't until Christmas dinner and all the families are there. And she says to her mum, you know, we had this little bit of a disagreement today over how to do the turkey. And I said, this is how you do it. That's the way it's done. And the mum laughed and said, I only ever did that because our oven was too small for it to fit into. Hmm. But this woman had taken that on as, well, this is the way you do it. We pass things on whether we mean to or not. So if we're going to pass on our faith, let's be intentional about it and let's do it in a really healthy way. Arguments against faith, they're actually quite some, some significant things that we need to consider if you are a person of faith wanting to pass it on to your children. We have to be doing this thoughtfully, intentionally, and in a way that is healthy for our kids because there is the the possibility of, of it being unhealthy. And I think we're seeing a lot of adults now sharing their stories of what would be regarded as spiritual abuse, of times where the passing on of faith has been destructive. And my heart aches for those people because I don't believe that's the way it should be and it's not the way it has to be. So what are some things, I guess, that we can avoid? One of the the main things that I came across was this idea of faith without substance. So if someone says they're a person of faith and they go to church and they, they go through the motions of what it looks like to be a person of faith, but then in private are a different person, And the person that their child sees is not this kind, loving, gentle, compassionate person that everyone else sees at church. It's someone who's punitive in their discipline. They're harsh or cruel with them. They're selfish. They're domineering. That's destructive. So that's not the kind of faith experience you want to pass on. So that extrinsic religiosity is how the researchers put it where it's a faith, but it's just an external faith, that can actually be very damaging. And sadly and scarily, 
statistically, that kind of faith is actually correlated with child abuse. So if you have an extrinsic faith only that is just on the outside, that is not something you've internalized and that you actually live out, it is just something you go through the motions, possibly to impress other people or whatever the the motivation might be. But then you are a different person at home with completely different set of moral values and standards and behaviors there is a higher statistical probability that the child in that house will experience child abuse. Hmm. That's scary when you say it like that. But at the same time, it's actually a really easy thing to counteract. And it's an easy thing to go, well, our family doesn't have to worry about that. And that's, I suppose, the flip side is that adults of faith need to have an integrated faith that crosses all areas of their lives. And that's yeah. kind of the protective factor against that. One of the other things that I, I discovered in my research was that people of faith can sometimes project this image of perfectionism. And they've actually given a name for it, and it's religious dysfunctional perfectionism. And they call it RDP. And that's what happens when the expectations that people place on children particularly, and the standards that they have are so high they are impossible to meet. So someone might be really well-intentioned. They might have a real heart for God. They might believe 100% they're doing the right thing. But if they make it impossible for their children to reach those standards, they're actually setting themselves up to fail. That unhealthy shame that a child feels can then be very detrimental to their emotional and mental well-being. And none of us want to see that. You know, we want kids who are resilient and encouraged and and who know how to make things right when they make a mistake rather than a child who goes, it's impossible, I can't be perfect. You know, my religious parents expect me to be. They berate me whenever I make a mistake. They tell me how disappointed they are in me and how disappointed God is in me. That is so destructive. And I don't believe that that's the God of the Bible that I read. So, again, it's something that the adults can actually control. We can control whether we're passing on a healthy faith by really wrestling with how do we deal with this idea of standards and expectations? Are we really rigid and controlling? And if we do that, what are we passing on to our kids? And I would respectfully say that that's not what we want to pass on. And that rigidity then goes over the other aspect that I came across was rigid thinking. So this black and white thinking that sometimes can accompany people of faith, that this is definitely wrong in all circumstances and that is definitely right in all circumstances. What researchers have found is that if children aren't allowed to explore the grey areas of life, their capacity for flexible thinking as they get older is actually reduced. I saw something interesting on on TV. They've got that show on at the moment, Parental Guidance, which is actually looking at all of these parenting styles. And something that one of the psychologists said on there was often that children who grow up in more authoritarian homes where the parents are more present as the decision makers in that position of authority, and there is a correlation between that style of parenting and faith, It's more likely for people of faith to have that more authoritarian stance. What they've found is that when children are faced in 
scenarios where they've set them up to see what would happen with children if, say, for example, someone approached them in a park and said, do you want to come and see some puppies? So a stranger danger type situation. Children who have been taught to always obey authority don't have the capacity as easily to identify that as a dangerous situation. And I think that that's something that's really important to think about as well. We definitely need parents who are parenting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting we put the kids in charge. But the way we parent, do we allow our kids to question? Do we allow them to think about exceptions to the rule occasionally? Do we explore the grey areas of life with them? And often that comes down to the parent's comfort in being able to do that themselves. So all of these things, I, I guess, are a result, these negative traits are a result of our own upbringing as parents often and our own experiences. But the good news is we can always change and grow. We don't have to stay the same. So even if we recognize ourselves in one of those areas and go, oh boy, that actually hits a little bit too close to home, there's great news. We can actually do things um, differently. We don't have to keep doing things the way that we've always done them. And that's important because there are some benefits of faith. And I'm sure that you're probably aware of some of the benefits, and I'm thinking that you would be on board with this. So one of them is a reduction in risk-taking. So there's research around that, that kids who and adolescents who go to weekly religious services or have prayer as part of their lives, even into their 20s, have greater life satisfaction and they have a more positive mood and there's less drug-related behaviour and fewer sexual partners over their lifetime. So there's this profoundly positive effect of being involved in faith-based activities and that improvement in psychological well-being, the researchers believe that comes from this idea of inner strength, that having God with us gives us this inner strength. And if, if you are a child who's been brought up in a healthy religious environment, that gives you the ability to face difficult situations, the ability to make good choices. And I love the fact that, that that actually has an impact even into their 20s. There's also just the the basic concept of happiness. And teenage years are a time when depression and anxiety can rise, but research has shown again that keeping teenagers engaged in church-based activities tends to increase their overall happiness with life. Now, living with three teenagers at the moment, happiness is a good thing. And I think that's something that we all want for our kids. So again, it needs to be healthy religious experience, but if it is, it can actually increase happiness. And another great thing that's probably less important than emotional well-being, but still a good thing, academic performance in the final years of high school can be higher in those who identify themselves. They self-identify as religious than those who don't. And researchers think that it's probably because there's a community of support around children. And so when they're supported, that flows on to better grades. Right. It seems like that there's a line with parenting here. And it's really tricky because I'm not a parent myself. I can only sort of speak from my own experiences with my parents and then look at my friends and peers and, and their experiences. And it's just interesting that you identified that line earlier. I have friends who came from households where they were kind of like you mentioned, more authoritarian. And these weren't exactly to the extent of child abuse situations, but certainly they grew up kind of being told what to do. And so mm. when they had the first opportunity to to pull away from that and, and go in the opposite direction, they did. And they tried to go as 
far away from it as possible. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because another thing about parenting that I've heard in the past that you can probably identify with is parents don't have a manual about how to teach their kids. <laughs> um, no, we don't. And it's hard. I adore my kids. They're amazing. They're the best thing that ever happened to us. And they are the hardest thing, you know, and I think there's so much fear as a parent. You fear that you've made the wrong choice. You fear that your kids are going to make the wrong decisions. And parenting from fear is actually not a great place to be. And I think I've had to really wrestle with that. Our oldest son, he had open heart surgery when he was four years old. And going through a medical emergency, a serious medical thing with your child, man, it's every parent's worst nightmare. And I was overwhelmed with anxiety. Even after his open heart surgery, I was just paralyzed with this anxiety. And my faith in a God that loves my son even more than I do, that's what allowed me to let go. And that's what enabled me to say, God, he was yours to start off with. He's just on loan to us. We're going to treasure every day and I'm going to let go. Now, he's 16, he's at TAFE now, doing great things, he's a great kid, but that fear was really real. And so many of these destructive elements that we've just outlined are actually all based around fear. So I guess parents want answers, though. They're like, okay, I know what not to do, but then what should I do? And so there's a couple of things, I guess, that I would suggest that come out of this. And the first thing is we can't give what we haven't got ourselves. So we need to invest in our own faith. It can't be shallow and it can't just be for show because that can really hurt our kids. And 99.9% of parents are actually 100% trying to do their best. Mm. And we need to be gracious with ourselves when we make mistakes but we also need to make sure we invest in our own faith. And actually, I would say that's a responsibility that we have. We need to get our own spiritual life on track. And then that's going to give us a better chance of passing on a healthy version of faith to our kids. The second thing, I think, is that we need to not be afraid to ask questions. So for some people who've grown up in a faith tradition, that's all they've ever known. Their worldview has always been that particular way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It might be very beneficial. It might be very strong. It might be all things right and good and true. But it's really helpful as mature adults to sometimes ask questions and wrestle with other points of view, even points of view we disagree with. And if we can do that ourselves, then we're going to be willing and able to walk our children through their questions too, rather than having that fear response and just shutting them down because we don't know what to say. Mm. And I have been known to say when I'm at the end of my tether, when a child says, why can't I, blah, 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 because I said so. Yes, those words have come out of my mouth. I will admit it. However, I think that that shouldn't be our default. You know, we should have a more open mind to explore the reasons behind the things we do what we do, to look at other perspectives and to not be so threatened by that that our kids don't feel like they can come to us with their questions. Because here's the thing, if they can't come to us, they're going to go to the internet or they're going to go to their friends. And what an opportunity, if you have a relationship with your kids where they can come to you and ask you difficult questions, that is a brilliant thing. And don't be afraid to answer with, if they come with a question, to say, I don't know. We don't have to have all the answers. What we can do is say, 
I don't know. How about we have a look at this together? Wrestle with stuff. You don't actually have to have all the answers to pass on your faith. And in fact, your children seeing you wrestle with something can be such a powerful thing for them in their own faith walk. Third thing is take your kids to church or youth group or Bible study or whatever that looks like for you. That community of faith, a really healthy community of faith can be an awesome thing. And you don't know the difference that that might have in their ability to go through tough things in their lives later on. You don't know those little foundation stones that are being built. So those would be the three things that I would recommend. It sounds like good parenting, a key ingredient is setting a kid up to to explore critical thinking later on and that open-mindedness that you talked about before. Now, as a kid, when a, a child is growing up, obviously, I think one commonality between parents who raise their child without a set of religious beliefs and those who do is all parents want their kid to grow up, I think, whether consciously or subconsciously, with values. Yeah. And for people with who are raising their kids with religious beliefs, those values sort of stem from that. So that it, it's mm. like the, the the belief in a Bible, for example, for Christian parents. There's a lot of values that can be brought out of Bible stories, say, for example, and presenting that to the kid and, and showing it like this is one way. Whereas, you know, I guess people with non-religious parents would probably similarly want to, to raise their kid with values and, and establish a sense of morality, I guess. So they're common in that sense. We're, we're actually not in opposition and, and, and we need to find that common ground. You know, most people are doing the best they can with what they have. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think that that's really important to remember. But I guess that's why I'm passionate about Advent for Kids because what I feel like this does is gives parents a tool that they can use with confidence that explores different perspectives. And through that Bible story, which, yes, I value and, and I have hopefully passed on to my children the value in this story, by doing a deep dive into all of the different players, the political situation, you know, we hear about Mary and her her story as the, the mother of Jesus as a, a young woman suddenly pregnant and knowing she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Like, whoa, that's huge. But then we have an evil king who gets wind that there's going to be a ruler, a new ruler has been born and he just wants to destroy everybody. So there's there's all of these elements that come into play. And my hope is that children see themselves and their stories reflected in this, that they can go, wait, what would I have done? And that's why we've got those questions in the round table at the start. It's to provide those connection points. There's a, a chapter about being afraid. So then we talk to the kids at the start about when have you been afraid? Let's, let's find the common humanity throughout this story and let's really explore that. But let's not leave it there because the human story of Jesus is only one part. But as a Bible believing Christian, it's his divinity that is the thing that is transformational. If Jesus was just a person, his birth actually would already have been forgotten. Like it's, it's mind blowing that people still celebrate his birth every Christmas. When you understand a little more around the the context, the, the Roman Empire, how unsettled it was, all the forces at play, it's just phenomenal. This is this child born to a poor family in a poor community with no power or influence, and yet we still celebrate that 2,000 years on. And that is, for me, just another layer of evidence for the truth of this story 
and for the power of this story to change our lives. And that's my hope and prayer for people and families who pick up this book this Christmas is that it will be like reading the story again for the first time, that that story they've heard all their lives about baby Jesus and the shepherds and the angels and all of that, that this experience together as a family, they will go deeper into this story and they will find personal meaning in this story. But more than that, above all, that they will find the picture of a God who loves them above anything else. Yeah. And I guess I'd just also include a note in there, just tying that back to the discussion we had earlier, whether or not raising a child with faith is child abuse. And I look, I, I acknowledge the fact that there might be people listening to this podcast who have had very negative experiences with faith. And absolutely, you made a point there earlier, Karen, which is, spot on, I think. I, I would encourage any person like that to, to ask themselves, was it actually the faith that was the the issue in mm. that scenario? Was it being just used in justification of something else? And Karen, I would ask you, like, you know, I've read in the Bible passages that promote critical thinking. There's, you know, yeah. the Psalmist David wrote, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it wasn't, you should eat you know, <laughs> as a metaphor, yeah. you should eat faith or or take it yeah. on. It's yeah, more 100%. give it a shot. Yeah, and and there are times in the Bible where people wrestle with God. You know, mm. like like they actually bring all of their complaints, they bring their accusations, they bring their hurt, and I believe with all my heart that God has big enough shoulders for us to be honest, and mm. that includes that wrestling. And this critical thinking, you know, we live in a world of mass media and every single thing that our kids see is trying to sell them something. It's trying to sell them an idea or an image or a product. And I'll never forget, it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, my kids were a lot younger and I was walking through a department store type place And everywhere I looked that season, they had signs that said want, need, must have. And I just went, our kids can't escape this. Mm. They're just, it's it's everywhere. Go for a walk in your local shopping mall and have a look at all the messages that our kids are being sent. We have to raise kids who are critical thinkers. We have to get them to see behind the smooth lines and the beautiful photos and the airbrush models and actually go, well, what was the person's motivation? Oh, wait. They're trying to get me to buy sunglasses. Why did they choose this girl lying on a beach and wearing fancy clothes? Well, they're trying to sell me the image that if I buy those sunglasses, I'm going to be like her. Mm. And I think that level of critical thinking can start from the tiniest of kids. And I I know with my own children, I went through a phase when they were younger and we were developing this where we'd what be watching TV and if an ad came on, I would stop and go, right, guys, what are they trying to sell you? And sometimes it was actually really hard for them to work it out. But over time, it's like a muscle. They worked that muscle out and they won't get it right all the time. But most of the time, my kids now are able to go, wait, they're trying to sell me something. They're trying to convince me that if I buy their product, I'm going to be popular or I'm going to be pretty or I'm going to be strong. You know, people are going to like me. And that same level of literacy, I believe we can bring to faith. So Mm. people have questioned God throughout history and that's okay. We don't need to be afraid of that. We just need to know, I guess, how to go about searching for answers, who to trust 
in those answers and what that looks like. And because I said so, if you're having a discussion with someone about faith and the answer is, well, you should believe that because I said so, that's actually not good enough for me. Like, Mm. because God said so, I can deal with. But even within that, we have to look at the context of everything. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of critical literacy and I think it's something that is getting more and more important as our kids become, you know, digital natives who have computers in their hands and the constant battle of teenage children and, you know, setting boundaries for screen time and all that kind of stuff. We've got to equip them and it's equipping them in their faith, but it's also equipping them to navigate the world as well. Yeah. One thing I think really is key to this discussion as well is understanding that faith is a journey. It's not a Mm. destination. It's a journey. And so, for example, you know, looking at parenthood later on, I think it's very important for parents to understand that and to be able to, to let go at times and know that while there may be the good intention of, I want my child to, to hold fast to these mm. beliefs that I hold dear, at the same time recognizing that the child or, or then later a teenager or an adult growing up needs to also discover that for themselves. They need to forge their own path. They need to uh, decide for themselves whether or not, like you just said, if that is is something they want to choose for themselves, that's so important to faith because faith is rarely someone is just becomes strong in the faith and, and it stays that way because there are so many challenges. People struggle, like you said, sometimes with the idea of God. Some Sometimes mm. they, they grow much stronger to God. Because of that, sometimes they choose to walk away. 100%. And I also think that kind of wrapped up in that, God values freedom over obedience. Mm. That is something that blows my mind because he's God. He could demand obedience, but he doesn't. He almost, he wants us to fall in love with the person that he is. And he wants us to choose to be in a relationship with him. But he doesn't make us. And I feel like if that's good enough for God, then it's good enough for me to try and do that with my kids. Now, I'm not God, so I'm going to mess up all the time. And, you know, with a 16 year old in the house, we're navigating that journey now, but I hold fast to the idea that if all my kids have is an inherited faith passed on by me, if it's my faith, that's not a foundation. Mm. If if they're all they've got to rely on is my faith, no matter how well I've passed it down, no matter how well I've talked about it, no matter how much I've tried to instill in them, if that's all they have, the roots are really shallow and it's going to blow away in the first strong breeze. What I want is for them to have their own faith. And that might look different to mine. And that's pretty confronting, but it also means you can have respectful dialogues about stuff. I learn stuff from my kids all the time. And I think if we have this idea that faith is a journey, then we can also have this idea that we can learn from our kids. You know, my book, Small and Big, was actually inspired by one of my twins, Jacob. He was only two at the time and we'd just been to swimming lessons and I was heavily pregnant with our fourth baby. I had three kids, five and under. Don't ask me what I thought I was doing taking them to swimming by myself. But anyway, I did. And as we were leaving, I've got the triplet pram piled up with bags, with towels and wet swimming clothes and the boys are holding onto the pram as we're walking out. And we go out through a door from the pool area into the foyer and I turn around and Jacob's missing. And I told the other boys to stay put and I went back to find Jacob. And I go through the door and he's literally just on the other side of the door. 
And I get into my cranky pants mum thing of we have to go home and I told you not to let go and you don't let go of the pram when mummy says so. And he looks up at me and he was this cutest little kid, blonde hair, blue eyes, round face, dimples. And he looks up at me wide-eyed and points to the wall and says, mummy, look at that beautiful leaf. And in the wall, stuck in between the bits of corrugated iron, was this absolutely gorgeous, perfectly symmetrical, bright red leaf. Now, in that moment, my child taught me. He taught me that the big things that I thought were so important sometimes need to be put aside for us to notice the small things. And that's how Small and Big came about, which is the story of friendship and about two people who see the world in two very different ways. But he was a two-year-old and he taught me but we've got to be open to that with our children. And I hope with Advent for Kids that the insights that the kids have might just be as transformational for their parents' faith as the reverse, because we're all in this together. Kids don't get a kid-sized version of the Holy Spirit when they become believers. You know, God is with them just the same way he's with adults. So I guess all of this is about humbling ourselves as parents, not being overwhelmed with fear, and trusting that God loves our kids so much that he is with them the rest of their lives. They're going to break our hearts sometimes, and that's the sad reality. Having your child make a bad decision, oh, man, that hurts. (laughs) It hurts so bad. And yet we can't stop them from doing that because there comes a point where they have to become the person that they are going to be. And That's when you pray really, really, really hard as a parent, as you start letting go. It's actually harder often than when they're little. It's busy when they're little. But when they're little, things are fixed by a cuddle and, you know, a Band-Aid. When they get bigger, the problems can't be fixed quite so easily. And and sometimes they don't let you in. You know, they they might value that they want to work things out for themselves. And walking beside our older kids through that, requires a lot of patience and a lot of love. But through this journey, and I'm not through it out the other side by any stretch yet, uh, there's coming a time very soon where we will have four teenagers. Please pray for me. But I feel like it's given me insight into how God feels about us, you know, and I, I want nothing but good things for my children. And I'm willing to, to sacrifice for them to have those good things. But at the end of the day, they have to also take responsibility for their own decision-making. And I think this journey of faith can be such a beautiful thing. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but that's okay because we've got God guiding us and he's guiding our kids. And if we can have him as part of all of that, it's okay. And if we can just hang on to that hope that we have, that's found in that story of Jesus right from the very beginning, that it's okay. It's going to end up, in the end, we know that Jesus wins. Like all the bad stuff goes away eventually. We're just in that middle bit of time where we have to hang on to that faith and hang on to all those things that are good and true and right and do the best we can in shepherding our children if that's what we want to do and pass on our faith, shepherding them into their own relationship with God that it's going to look different from ours, but then maybe we can just learn from each other. Absolutely. There's some beautiful words in there, Karen. It just really brings full circle why there is so much value in a book 
like Advent for Kids that, you know, whether or not you come from a faith-based background and, and want to continue to share that with your kids or you want to give it a go for the first time, I think this book will be a great tool that you can use. But the question is then, where can we get access to this book? Where can people buy this book? Sure. I do know it's already available on Kindle because my kids were delighted the other day. They had a search on Kindle, Mom, your book's there. So I think it's available for pre-order on that. You can also get it from any Adventist book centre in Australia and I believe overseas as well. So if you just Google Advent for Kids, Karen Collum, C-O-L-L-U-M, and Nathan Brown, it will bring up a whole heap of options of where you can get this book. And the other thing I did just want to say, if you're someone who maybe you know a little bit about the Christmas story, but you're the very beginning of your faith journey, or maybe even you're not sure about where you are about it all, but you're open to the idea, I would really encourage you to grab this book because at the beginning, I've actually written a whole overview of the story. So it doesn't rely on you. Like sometimes you can pick up stuff and go, well, I don't know if my kids have questions. I'm not going to know what to say. We've actually already thought of that for you. And we've given you an overview of the story and the key roles that people play and the key events that I hope will give you confidence to journey through this book with your kids, even if it's the very first time you're doing that. And honestly, I still read kids' books because they're they're brilliant in, I guess, expressing complex things in ways that I can understand. So if you are on the beginning of your faith journey, this could be a really good starting point for you, even if you don't have kids, because it's written in a way to make it accessible for everybody, no matter what prior experience you have. Absolutely. Karen, thanks so much for for coming on and sharing, not just about Advent for Kids, but also why faith is so important in that stage of raising a child and and where the line is, you know, helping us Mm. really to discern So thanks so much, Karen, and I I really appreciate you joining us this week on Signs of the Times. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. And I'm just, yeah, I want to wish all the families, no matter how you celebrate, that you have a really blessed Christmas this year. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.